Acts chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 13 through 52. And we're going to be learning more about a different kind of Savior and how we think about Jesus is different than what people expected and what even we expect. And there's a phrase, there's a verse in the text that I want to challenge us with um, in several moments that help us understand that God continues to be bigger than we can think of or imagine. Um, So uh, that's part of what we want to learn today. Um, How many would you, how many of you would agree with me that this season of life is a little crazy? Uh, It's a little crazy, right? I mean, we have COVID that changes life um, and it makes a lot of difficulty when we think about things like, I think of the O'Briens and medical issues. Your medical situation has changed so many times because of COVID. Um, I think about educators who are here, um, Carmen and other teachers who are a part of things. Um, your life has been altered, right? As teachers, especially as they think the next couple of weeks, beginning with um beginning with school. What is that going to look like? How is it going to be? And that includes obviously all you kids and you students. It seems like every institution has changed and been altered in some way. How we shop, how we go and um, eat food, right? Uh, Kristen and I were with some friends last night getting food. Downtown Redlands, shutting off all the streets, table is, tables in the streets so that you can eat food outside. Really interesting that this is the world that we now live in. The world is crazy. But let's add to the crazy a little bit and talk about November because November is a presidential election. And we know that's going to be crazy already, don't we? We know that that's going to be one of those things that that makes our lives a little um, nuts with how things are talked about in politics and how people say, oh, uh, this about this candidate or this about this candidate. And I know even me saying and talking about the presidential election, some of you, your blood pressure went up because it's such a uh, it's fraught with so much tension. Right. And we think about this presidential election this fall. One of the hopes that some people has is have is for change. They want to see things change and be different. And another group of people want things to be the same, but also change because certainly we we want to see things improve and adjust and and get better. So if you're voting for for President Trump again, you want to see things change, but in a different way than those who might vote for candidate Biden. So in all of this, we see all this desire for things to be different and change in the middle of all the crazy that we're already experiencing. But I have some bad news for you. No matter who gets elected this fall, come 2021, January 2021, when Inauguration Day or whenever that day comes, there will be a lot of things that stay exactly the same. Let's just be clear about that. Uh, Even in the political world, no matter what happens, things will stay the exact same. Let me walk these through. We will still have a Supreme Court in January. Do we believe that? Yeah, we will. Will we still have a House of Representatives and a Senate? Yes, we will. Will there still be people who are lobbyists and people who help chiefs of staff and other staff members for congressmen and senators and the president and all these different people who are the authority and the leaders in Washington? Do we believe that all those things are going to stay the exact same? Yes, we do. So even while we talk about something that is big and could fundamentally be a big change and shift in our country, we realize despite the fact that there could be change, that things will stay remarkably the same. I want us to think about that because this morning we're being 
we're walking through a text that highlights that Jesus came in a position of power where in his enacting and living into the power that he was called by the Father to live into, he didn't just bring a little change. He changed everything in terms of the world that Jews lived in. And we're going to see how Paul, through one speech to a group of people in Antioch, helps us understand how big that change is. And then together, we want to wonder about how God might continue be being at work in our world to change our world in, simp- in, in, in the exact same sort of radical ways. As we dig into God's word this morning, let's pray for his blessing on our time of learning and growing. Father, be present with us. Encourage us and challenge us. Help us understand more about how incredible you are and what it is that you bring to our world through the grace and the understanding that we have of who Jesus Christ is. You have come to change us, not just a little, but in every way. You've come to change our world, not just a little, but in every way. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that as we learn and grow in our understanding of your transformation of our world and our lives, that we may then live into that transformation and understand every day is a day where you can do incredible and amazing things in and around us. And we're open through the Holy Spirit to be a part of your work in our world. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, turning your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. We'll begin by reading verses 13 through 22. It says this there. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And this is sort of one of those requests where these people really don't know what they're asking for. You're asking for something and you're going to get it just in a way you don't expect. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Is- the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power he led them out of that country. For about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. So before we get into what Paul is saying here, I want to spend some time thinking about geography. If you know anything about geography, just before Paul starts this conversation in Pisidian Antioch, he's on the island of Cyprus. And the journey from the island of Cyprus eventually to land in Antioch is a journey of almost 500 miles. 
Now we sort of think we, we skip over it from, uh, you know, really in three verses, but we're not talking about days of a journey. We're talking probably about months. And for, for Paul to go there, he's got to get on a ship. He's got to go and Antioch is inland by, I think it's about 120 miles from the shore. So he's got to make that journey. You're not journeying more than 20 miles a day in even the quickest of terms at the time because Paul's not riding horses, he's walking. This is sort of one of those things where, I mean, as we read through the book of Acts, we don't have an idea even in today's sort of terms, how hard the work was for Paul and his companions to do. But what's interesting is when he gets to Pisidian Antioch, the gospel has already been there. There's already people who have a sense of what the gospel is. They don't know the whole story. They haven't had it explained to them. But Paul is going to do that here. But at least these people have heard the name of Jesus, which is really interesting. Because we're talking at this time, maybe about at the most 10 or 15 years after the death of resurrection of Jesus. And we're talking about a thousand miles or over that from Jerusalem that the name of Jesus is already going out. The gospel is spreading. The power of Jesus is going out to the known world. So when Paul gets there, he's not having to till ground for the first time. They've already heard a little bit of Jesus, but he has the opportunity to explain to them who Jesus really is. And how he does it is really interesting. In the section that we just read, he spends time with the Old Testament Israel, right? And over the course of that, he tells the story. And the way Paul does this is actually not unique. If we know that um, in the book of Acts, we've already seen this done twice. Who else told stories like this? Anyone want to guess? There was one in Acts 2. Who was that who did that? It was Peter. Peter told the story in Acts 2 of the nation of Israel rising up and eventually culminating in the story of Jesus. But then there's another one. I want to say that's Acts 7. I could be wrong on that. It's the story of Stephen. Stephen goes and he talks to people. Eventually, he tells the story so well, he gets stoned and killed for it. But he tells the same sort of story. The history of Israel culminating in Jesus. And Paul does it here, but he does it in an interesting fashion. Where does he start? Where does the story start? In verse, let me make sure I got it here. In verse 16, where does he start? He starts with Egypt. Is that the beginning of the nation of Israel? Turn back in your Bibles. You know it's not, right? You go back, the story of the nation of Israel actually really begins fundamentally with Abraham. He skips all that. Why does Paul do that? He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. Here's why. Because Paul is starting with Israel at their lowest. He's starting with them as slaves in Egypt. And you'll see, how does he end this section of the story? Who does he end with? He starts with them as slaves. And by the end of the section I just read, where does he get to? He gets to the person of David. So he gets to David, king of Israel. He gets from the lowest that Israel was in slavery to the highest that they were. In fact, the kingdom of Israel expanded under Solomon, but we know Solomon had his problems, right? He had some problems with women. He had some problems with idolatry. He had some other things that were challenges for him. They consider the culmination of the nation of Israel as David. So it goes from the lowest to the highest. And you can almost hear 
the people who are Jews and know the story, who are hearing Paul say, yes, we like that story. The story of the power of Israel coming to a place of great power and prominence in the known world. And Paul challenges them because he begins to tell the story of Jesus. And let's see how he tells it. It says this, From this man's descendants God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance, baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? Not the one you are looking for. There is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. People of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So you hear Paul in the first section bring them from the depths of Israel's slavery in Egypt all the way to the place of the pinnacle of David being king. And then he's in a sense saying, okay, at the top of all this, then you get Jesus. Yay, Jesus, in all his power who gets kicked around and ends up tortured and ends up crucified and, and dead. In some ways, what Paul is doing in this speech is taking them into their understood expectations about who Jesus is as Messiah and King. And then he's saying, and here's the culmination. And you know what? The culmination doesn't look like what you expect. The culmination is not Jesus ending up in Jerusalem in the palace of what is now a Herod and taking over and showing Israel as a great power in the known world that takes over all the world and exhibits Israel's power wherever people are. It's not that. It doesn't look like that. What would have happened though if Jesus would have chosen to do that? If Jesus would have lived in to the Jewish expectations for the Messiah and the King, here's what would have happened. Jesus would have become, become king and he would have done it perfectly. We believe that, don't we? He does everything perfectly. And he would have probably expanded the power of Israel. Certainly, it's something that we would expect. He came to redeem the world. He would maybe control the whole world. But whose definition of power would he be living into? The world's definition of power. The world's definition of position. The world's definition of authority. If Jesus would have fulfilled the Jewish expectation for what a Messiah is, he would have fulfilled an expectation that was the pinnacle of the world's idea of power. Instead, we know he's obedient to the Father. And in obedience to the Father, we see something radically different. And something that even that radical difference shows itself to us today. Let's continue as we read here, verses 32 through 41. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. 
God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject today as God has to decay, as God has said. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your body, uh, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone had told you. Now, if you look at this section of the text. What you're going to see is Paul is reminding the Jewish people and the Gentiles who follow God that God has fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus. Here's the promises that he's kept. He's he's saying God has been faithful and fulfilled scripture. How do we know that? Verses 32 through 34. Five, we have three different quoted passages of scripture that this is who Jesus is. He is a victor over death. His body doesn't decay. David did, he doesn't. So we see that promise. He has victory over death and he's fulfilled scripture. He's resurrected. He has life. And that's a promise to them as savior, that as a savior that they participate in that victory over death and resurrection and eternal life. In Christ, sins are forgiven. Verse 38, where it says this. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. All these promises, one after the other. And the law doesn't have power to save them. Grace does. Verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So we get Paul bringing the people from the depths of slavery in Egypt to this pinnacle of David and then saying, and here all the promises are revealed to you and renewed to you and kept in Jesus Christ. And this Jesus doesn't look the same way that you expect. How did the Jews respond to that? How do they think about that? Well, let's continue. We'll finish the passage. Verse 42 through 52, it says this. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. 
The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, you notice what stops the Jews from embracing Paul's message? Not disbelief, right? What's the standard that stops them? What's the thing that stops them? What does it say? And the Jews were jealous. They were jealous of what Paul was saying because Paul was speaking with power. It was not because of disbelief. In fact, what they were hearing probably made sense. The only problem is, is that Paul was speaking with a power that they didn't understand. And so they reject him. And because they reject him, Paul gives this powerful statement about what happens next. He said this. He said, for this is what the, or how does he say this? We had to speak the word of God to you, verse 46. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. How many of you are encouraged by that passage, by that verse? You should be. You know why? Because that's why you know Jesus. You can't know Jesus without the shift of the gospel moving from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. Because guess what? Y'all are Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I was not bar mitzvahed. You, Marlene, were not bat mitzvahed when you were 14. We are not a part of the tradition of the Jewish faith, of Judaism. We are part of the Gentile tradition. And without Paul saying these words in Pisidian Antioch, that now the message is going out to the Gentiles, unless he says that, you and I don't know who Jesus is. We are not a part of the body of Christ. We are not a part of God's kingdom. A kingdom that looks unexpected. A kingdom that looks different than what we anticipate. A kingdom that looked different to the Jews. And if it looked different to them, in Jesus' coming, we should expect and anticipate that the kingdom looks different to us. See, here's the thing. When we see how the Jews responded to Paul's message here, we think, oh, you Jews, you guys just messed it up. You weren't listening. You made the mistake of missing Jesus. But friends, why would we think that God doesn't continue to work in that same extraordinary way of, of, of beyond our comprehension. Someone, someone stand up and loudly read verse 41 for me. Somebody read it. You can even stay seated. Verse 41 says what? Say it loudly. Thank you, Ed. Look, you scoffers. Wonder and perish, for I'm doing something in your days that you would never believe. Even if someone told you, why would we think ever that God stopped working that way? Why would we ever put a cap? Why would we ever put a limit? Why would we ever put a barrier on what the Holy Spirit is capable of? How many of you are sick and tired of COVID? How many of you, if I said that there was something that God was doing to transform the world, would you say, yay, God? Guess what? 
God's using COVID to transform the world. How do you feel about COVID now? Yea, God. It's hard to do that. It's challenging to do that. We see conversations that end up in protest on the streets. We see conversations that are hard some, for some of us to participate in and understand and navigate. We feel that we don't have a, a voice. We don't know how to have a voice. How many of us believe that actually in some of those places, God is at work? That's hard to do. But if we're hearing verse 41, we're reminded that God does things constantly in ways that we don't expect or anticipate. And we don't want to be scoffers of the way God will be at work in our world, do we? I don't want to be somebody who limits God's power of the Holy Spirit in my life and in the world around me. I don't want to be one of those people who say, God, you have to work according to my expectation. I don't want to be one of those people who say, unless it looks like this, it's not of the Holy Spirit. Instead, I want to be able to say, I want to be able to say every day, God, what is it that you are doing in my world? Give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that longs to see your activity around me in such a way that I can participate. And if you don't call me to participate, when I see it, I can say, praise you, Jesus, for what you're doing. I can look around at my world and say, God, you are the God of the unexpected, even to today. God is not limited by our understanding. And for us to be willing to say in the world that we live in, whatever that looks like, in the chaos of COVID, in the craziness of the dialogue about race and injustice and violence, in a world where the presidential election is coming, whether we want it to or not, for us to be able to understand in all of those things, God is active and he is present and he is powerfully transforming and we can expect that he's doing it in a way that we don't know how it's going to look. That's okay. That's good. Praise Jesus. God doesn't, is not limited by my expectation. Praise Jesus that, that the kingdom of God is not limited by my understanding. I can tell you, even in the last four weeks, I have seen the kingdom of God in some unexpected places. You know where I saw the kingdom of God? In Michigan. That's an unexpected place. God is at work in Michigan. He's at work in Michigan. Seven pound, 13 ounce little child. And a family who loves Jesus and is raising that child up in the way that he should go. So when he is old, he's not depart from it. God is at work in some of the conversations among us. God is going to be at work at the council on Tuesday night. God is at work in your families. Even as we talk through and think about and imagine and dream about hard things, God is present. And let's embrace the characteristic of God that he's going to work in a way that we can't anticipate, think of, or imagine. Because he shows that to us constantly. Let's pray together. Father, you are unexpected. You are beyond our imagination. As we're reminded in Scripture, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are greater than our thoughts. You were able to imagine from nothing the creation of all things. You were able to imagine a way um, 
out of death and sin and brokenness that involved the cross and the tomb so that we might have life unexpected. That, Father, you continue to be unexpected in our world, that you use things, even like a virus that transforms our world, to see your kingdom grow. You use difficulty and challenging conversations about race and about police and about violence to transform your world for your glory. You use a contentious presidential election to transform your world and bring more people to Jesus and to bring your kingdom to this earth. Lord, we do expect, we do anticipate to be surprised in the days ahead. Continue to surprise us. And Lord, in our surprise, may we take great joy in you never stopping to surprise us in the world that we live in. As you show your love and grace as the world is transformed so that someday, Lord, in your fullness, your kingdom might come on earth and we might meet you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.